Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen. The scripture will be up there in the translation that I will be reading from. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9. The Word of God says, But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would bless the reading of the Word of God this morning. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would now bless the exposition of the Word as well. Be with us, prepare our minds and our hearts to receive the Word. Open our ears and open our eyes that we may understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I've had the uh, privilege of living in a whole lot of different places. A lot of you guys know that. Uh, Alaska, Canada, Ohio. Um, but there's, there's really only two times in my life where I've really had culture shock uh, moving to a different location. One of those times was when I moved to Maine. And, uh, and, and, and Maine was, uh, was, was very different for me. One of the things that was really different about Maine was just the spiritual atmosphere of Maine. And, and, and really, this is, I think, indicative of lots, uh, uh, lots of the Northeast. Um, it, 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 was, um, it was a place that didn't have a lot of strong, Bible-based, God-centered churches. It was a, it was a tough place to do, to do ministry because you had people who either uh, clearly loved Jesus, were on fire for Jesus on the one hand, or you had people on the other hand who were just totally indifferent to Jesus or maybe even hostile to Jesus. It was a tough place to do ministry. There wasn't really any middle ground. Uh, but, but one of the benefits, though, is that you could tell whose side everybody was on. I mean, it was pretty clear 
um, you know, whether somebody really loved Jesus or not. That was the first big culture shock for me. The second big culture shock for me was coming to the South. That was probably the biggest culture shock for me that I ever experienced. Uh, when I came to the South, I was amazed because there are churches everywhere in the South. They're all over the place. And lots of people go to church. And, and there's Christian radio stations, multiple stations in the same community all over the radio dial. There's Chick-fil-A, a Christian fast food restaurant that played Christian music and was closed on Sunday. And, and, and coming from the Northeast down to the Bible Belt, that was just an amazing, amazing contrast. And yet I quickly learned... Uh, and, and, and experienced Southerners warned me about this in advance, that, that all is not as it seems necessarily in the South. And whereas in the Northeast it wasn't too difficult to tell whose side people were on, in the South you, you've, you've kind of got this fuzzy middle. This, this fuzzy middle. If you've lived in the South a long time, you probably know uh, what I mean. You, you've got this Christian culture where people go to church and they profess faith in Jesus and they claim to believe the Bible and, and yet it is nothing more than a cultural thing. They're, they're not really living for Jesus. They haven't really surrendered their lives to Him. Their life Monday through Saturday is really no different than the rest of the world around them. They have, they have the outward trappings of Christianity, but it hasn't penetrated into their hearts. And so you've got a multitude of people in churches right now, this morning, even as I speak, all across America, not just in the South, but all across America, who are listening to sermons like you're listening to a sermon this morning. They're singing songs like you're listening and singing songs. They're praying like you're praying this morning. They're, they're, they're giving like you're giving this morning. They say they believe in Christ like you say you believe in Christ, and yet if they were to die today, hell would be their destiny. They have a worthless Christianity. True Christianity, genuine Christianity, is worth everything. But there is a brand of Christianity that is worthless, that is dangerous, and will not save you, and will not get you in to heaven. And that's what we're talking about this morning, is worthless Christianity. And for many years now, one of the biggest concerns that I've had for the church in America is how the church is inundated with people who are happily on their way to destruction in churches. And sometimes I wonder if the church is enabling this problem because we are not clearly articulating the gospel and the nature of genuine, saving, biblical faith. And this problem of false Christians and, and false Christianity and worthless Christianity is nothing new. The church has been dealing with this for a long time. Even back in the very beginning of the church, 2,000 years ago, and we see here in Acts 8, one of the first clear snapshots of a false Christian in the person of Simon the Magician. And I believe this is a very important story because I think we can learn a lot from Simon regardless of whether you're a Christian, a genuine Christian or not. I, I think there are some, some warnings here that we can take away from this story. And one of the struggles that I had had in dealing with this passage and preparing for the sermon is that there is a couple of parallel stories running together 
And I just can't draw all there is to draw out of this chapter in one sermon, so I'm having to pick and choose this morning. There's going to be some questions that you might have about this passage that we're not going to be able to answer this morning. One of the biggest questions has to do with, if you look uh, down in verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who had come down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. That is a really odd passage. Because it's saying that these Samaritans had believed the gospel and it appears that they were converted. It appears that they were genuine believers and yet they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. Now the Bible elsewhere clearly tells us that if you are a believer, you have received the Holy Spirit. So what's, what's that all about? Why, why the delay? Why does the Holy Spirit wait until He comes upon these believers? And I think there's an answer for it. And I think the answer is very significant, but it would take a whole separate sermon to deal with that. So, so maybe, Steve, maybe one thing we could do is spend another week in Acts 8. Maybe, maybe you can take that up next week and, and, and deal with that. And, and give some answers about that. Or we could wait until we get to Acts 10, when, when the gospel gets to the, the Gentiles, and they too receive the Holy Spirit in a similar way. But we can talk about that later on. But now let's turn to our uh, attention, uh, turn our attention to Simon the Magician. We don't know a whole lot about Simon outside of what the Bible tells us. We do have some writings outside the Bible, however, that do mention Simon, and none of these writings tell us anything positive about Simon. It's all, it's all bad stuff. He's depicted as the arch enemy of the church. He's depicted as the arch enemy of Peter. He's depicted as one of the founders of Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught that you do not gain salvation through Christ, but you rather gain salvation through a special, a special knowledge about God, acquiring that special knowledge. And we have, we, we have some mention of Simon in the writings of the second century church fathers, that, that generation of believers that came on the scene after the apostles died and after the Bible was completed. You have Justin Martyr, who himself was a Samaritan, interestingly enough. He writes about uh, uh, Simon. He says that almost all the Samaritans considered Simon to be a god. Uh, Irenaeus wrote quite a bit about uh, Gnosticism, and he too identifies Simon as one of the early proponents of Gnostic belief. Now in Acts 8, Acts 8 tells us that Simon was a magician or a sorcerer. It's, it's, and it's not clear whether Simon was actually in touch with evil, supernatural, demonic powers or whether Simon was just a really good illusionist and who had a really charismatic personality and was really good at tricking people. But whatever Simon was doing, he was pretty, pretty skilled at it. You know, magic in, in the ancient days, in the ancient world, was, was practiced both by pagan people and by Jewish people with, with the goals of healing diseases, bringing about physical blessings, cursing or otherwise harming others, uh, guarding against both curses and demons. Uh, magicians claimed to foretell the future. Ancient literature and discovered magical books indicate that magic often involves special incantations, which, which meant frequently invoking magical names of deities, of gods, and of demons. Uh, they had potions, and they used all kinds of magical objects like amulets and incantation bowls and figurines and all that sort of 
sort of thing. And of course, in the scriptures, magic is forbidden. Sorcery is, is forbidden. But this was the trade of Simon. And one of the things we learn about Simon right away is that he was an egomaniac. And he was seeking, clearly seeking glory for himself. Look at this in uh, verse 9. It says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. Now, why does it say previously? I'll get to that in a second. But it says he practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So Simon is going around amazing the people of Samaria, and he's drawing attention to himself, proclaiming that he's somebody great. He's, he's going around saying, look at me. I'm great. I'm awesome. Look what I can do. Uh, he, he, he loved to be in the spotlight. If Simon were alive today, the paparazzi would be his best friends. He loved that. He loved being in the center of attention. He'd want cameras around all the time. And his plan to be at the center of attention worked. Because look at verse 10. It says, they all, pay, they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time because he had amazed them with his magic. So this man was living large. He was soaking it all in. He was the big man on campus in Samaria until verse 12. Look at verse 12. But... When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. So you, you have people who are totally enthralled by Simon. They're totally amazed by Simon until Philip comes along with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is why I think verse 9 says Simon previously practiced magic. Before verse 12, Simon was the man. But, but after verse 12, Simon's out of business. Nobody's paying attention to Simon anymore. Verse 11, it says they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. In verse 12, it says, but. And that word, but, is key to understanding what's happening here. They paid, to him, paid attention to him for a long time because he was amazing them with his magic, but now they're not paying attention to him anymore. They have turned away from Simon and they have turned to Jesus Christ. And at first, it seems that Simon is embracing Christ as well. It goes on to say, Simon himself believed and was baptized. And, and so it really seems like it's going to be a positive story. Even this sorcerer who's, who's engaged in, the, in an occult activity, even he is believing and even he is being baptized. But by the time you get to the end of this story, it's clear that while many Samaritans were getting saved, Simon was not one of them. While, while at first he may have looked good on the outside and had, had the trappings, the outward trappings and the outward appearance of Christianity, uh, he ends up embracing actually a worthless Christianity, missing out on true life found through Jesus Christ. Now there are three key things we can take away from Simon today. But before I go there, I need to address this question. How do I know that Simon is not saved? How do I know that? And there's been some debate uh, about that throughout, throughout the, uh, the centuries as people try to interpret this, this text. Maybe Simon was just an immature Christian. I mean, the text is talking about revival amongst the Samaritans. That's one of the big points of this passage. It's talking about Samaritans coming to, to Christ. 
In verse 12, it says that the Samaritans believed the gospel message. It says that they were baptized. And then in verse 13, it includes Simon among those who believed and are being baptized. And later on, we see these believing Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit in verse 17. So, so how can I make such a conclusive statement about Simon's salvation? I don't have to make that conclusive statement. I think Peter makes the conclusive statement for me. If you look at verse 20 and following, so look at verse 21, Peter says to Simon, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. Some translations say part nor portion in this matter. Some say part nor share in this matter. This is really Old Testament type language that Peter's drawing on. Old Testament type language referring to inheritance. He's really saying Simon is excluded from what's happening here. You have people being saved. You have people receiving the Holy Spirit. You have people experiencing the blessings of God. And Peter turns to Simon and says, this is not your inheritance. You have no part in this. Your inheritance, unless you repent, is hell. Now, if you think I'm stretching things a bit in regards to hell, look at what Peter says in verse 20. This is even more clear. He says, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. This talk of perishing is not talk about physical death. Okay, Peter is not saying to Simon, drop dead, Simon. He's not talking about physical death. Perishing so often in the Bible refers to spiritual death and spiritual destruction. You look at the famous verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not, what? Perish. Shall not perish, but have eternal life. Or you look at John 10.27, Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. They will never perish. Or you have Paul in 1 Corinthians 18. Uh, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And all those verses, perishing is something other than physical death. It's something worse than physical death. Perishing in these verses has to do with spiritual death, eternal death, which is synonymous with eternal damnation or hell. And, and notice also in those three verses that I just quoted, what perishing is contrasted with. John 3.16, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Or John 10.27, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Or 1 Corinthians 18, the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In all these instances, you have perishing contrasted with eternal life and with salvation. And this is what's on Peter's mind as well. When Peter says, may your silver perish with you, Peter is talking about perishing in the sense of judgment. Basically, Peter is saying, Simon, to hell with you and your silver. And Peter is not talking this way in the sense that he's swearing or having a potty mouth. Peter's talking about hell literally. May, you, could, you could also reword it, may your silver go to hell along with you. It's really a terrifying statement that Peter makes to Simon. So I believe when we consider the character of Simon in this story, the character of Simon after he believes and, and is baptized, and Peter's strong rebuke to Simon, you put all those things together, I think it's rather clear that Simon is not saved. So what can we learn from Simon? 
We can learn a whole lot. I think we learn three main things. One, belief does not save you. Two, baptism does not save you. Number three, enthusiastically coming to Jesus does not save you. Look at the first one. Belief does not save you. Look at verse 13. The text says that even Simon himself believed. Now some of you may be squirming in your seats this morning as I announce to you, as I declare to you, that belief does not save you. Your first reaction may be, of course belief saves you. We see texts all over the Bible that talk about belief saving you. Deemer, you just quoted one. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Or how about Acts 16.30? Man comes up to Paul. He says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Romans 10.9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And yet in Acts 8.13, what does it say? It says, Even Simon himself believed. So what gives? You've got declarations all over the Bible that say all you have to do to receive salvation is to believe. Simon believes. Peter turns to him and says, may your silver go to hell with you. And I think that we learn here that while there is a belief that saves, there is also a type of belief that does not save. Even if that belief arises through the preaching of the word of God and through genuine signs and wonders. Now, is there anywhere else in the Bible that we see this? I think so. Uh, We see this, I think, in John 2 talking about Jesus in John 2.23. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You have in John 2 people hearing the word that Jesus is preaching. They are seeing signs and wonders just like Simon. But, but Jesus does not accept their faith as genuine. Why? Because the text says he knew all people. He knew what was in man, which means that he could see into their hearts. And notice what Peter sa- says to Simon in Acts 8.21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Why? He says, for your heart is not right before God. So the belief that does not save is, super, is a superficial, shallow belief that doesn't sink into the heart. The Bible says that true, genuine, saving faith actually transforms and changes lives. Have you ever known people, uh, friends, relatives, folks who say they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, they believe in the gospel, the Bible, all this stuff, They believe in all this, they claim to be saved, they're on their way to heaven, and yet there is absolutely no change in their life. There's no change whatsoever. There's no no growth that's happening over a period of time. They believe and they have a conversion experience, and yet their life after they believe looks no different, really, than their life before they believe. Have you ever known people like that? James addresses this problem in James chapter 2. If James were to sit down with your friend or your family member that you're thinking about, what would James say? 
James would say what he said in chapter 2 of his book, verse 18 and following. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Or to use our terminology, worthless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This church does not believe that you are saved by works. Okay? This church believes that you are saved by faith alone. But we need to define what biblical saving faith is and looks like. In James chapter 2, James is not pitting faith against works. He's pitting true, genuine faith that saves against dead, worthless, demonic faith. And you have churches today filled with people who have nothing more than demonic faith. They say, yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe in the Bible. Yes, I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins. And their Christianity is worthless. It will do nothing for them except send them to hell. It is a shallow, superficial, disingenuous faith. And how do we know this? We know this, James teaches us, because there is not a life of godliness, a life of works, a godly works that are flowing from that faith. And so they are in no better position than the demons. Demons believe. Demons know the gospel is true. Demons believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If you read the Gospels, when Jesus encounters demon-possessed people, you have demons in the Gospels identifying Jesus as the Son of God. Demons have better theology than your typical liberal mainline Protestant church. And yet, the destiny of demons is hell. And so is the destiny of everyone who has that same kind of belief. There's no transformation in Simon's life. Simon believes, but he's exposed as a false believer with a worthless Christianity who's just looking for his own power and his own glory. So that kind of belief does not save. Second thing, baptism does not save. Not only does the Bible say that Simon believed, but Simon was also baptized. And yet this baptism is totally useless for Simon. It is completely meaningless. When Simon is baptized, he's doing nothing more than taking a bath. He's a little cleaner than he was than before he was baptized. There's nothing magical about baptism. Baptism is a declaration. Baptism is an announcement about something that has already happened to you. Baptism is a declaration that the person who is being baptized has been judged with Christ, has died with Christ, has been buried with Christ, has been raised to newness of life with Christ, and absolutely none of these things has happened to Simon. His baptism was false. His baptism was saying something about him that was not true. And yet many people who not only have a dead faith, you have many people today who have a lying baptism. You have people taking comfort in the fact that they were baptized as a baby and they feel secure in that. You have adults 
who get baptized, thinking that it's that work of baptism that's going to cover them and save them. But baptism did absolutely nothing for Simon, and it does, no, it does nothing for anyone in the world, in the world of, of, of superficial, worthless Christianity. And not only is such a baptism worthless for such a person, but so is any other religious work as well. We can take baptism, but we can expand that to any kind of religious work. Paul declares in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is one of the main things that separates Christianity from other religions. In other religions, good deeds, being religious... Uh, obeying certain laws is actually meritorious and it counts towards salvation. It scores points with God on the big cosmic scale. So when you stand before God and your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you get to go to heaven. It, it works for you. It works towards your salvation. In Christianity, though, good works and religious acts are meant to be a natural overflow and outworking of genuine saving faith that's already present in the believer's life, as we just read about in James chapter 2. So works is a part of the Christian life, but it comes as a result of the faith that the believer already has. Or as I like to say, faith is the engine and works is the caboose. Works is the natural outflowing of that faith. But you've got plenty of people around who don't have genuine saving faith they're just, they're just jumping through hoops and going through religious motions and they're trusting in those things to save them and it's worthless. One element of worthless Christianity is where people say they believe God and they throw in a few religious deeds here and there. They get baptized. They go to church every week. They give a little money here and there. But again, just as with faith, the whole question is what's going on in the person's heart? People can look good on the outside and, and do good things and have all the outward trappings of a, of a Christian, kind of like the, the man in the video that we just saw. I love that video with his, with his little testaments. His little, those are real, by the way. I don't know if you've ever seen the testaments, but the little Christian candy. There's Christian candy. I can't believe that. Uh, Christian T-shirts and bumper stickers and doing all these, these Christian things and, 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 and maybe even serving in ministry. I've heard of, I've heard of, of pastors and deacons hearing the preaching of the gospel and getting saved. I've heard stories like that. I believe stories like that. That stuff happens. Isaiah addresses this problem of outward religious acts in the Old Testament. In, in Isaiah, he's, he's dealing with, with uh, Jewish people who were very religious. They were way more religious than Simon ever was. I mean, Simon got baptized, you know, but, but you have the Jews in the Old Testament going through all kinds of religious motions and doing, doing feasts and festivals and sacrifices and all those sorts of things. And God was not impressed by this. God says in Isaiah 29, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. One of the most religious people in the whole Bible was Paul. Before Paul was saved, we're going to be reading about that in a couple of weeks. I cannot wait till we get to that. Before Paul was saved, he, he was the master of being religious. And in Philippians 3, Paul gives his religious res resume and he tells us what the value of his religious acts were apart from, from, from Christ in his life. He says in Philippians 3, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, worthless, garbage 
I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Simon's religious work, Simon's baptism, meant absolutely nothing. And I fear that there are many people in churches all over the country and all over the world, and maybe even in this building, I don't know, where there are religious deeds, there are acts of worship, there are these things going on that, mean, that means nothing because their hearts are far from the Lord. They honor me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. So there's a belief that does not save. Baptism and religious works do not save. I think the other thing we learned from Simon, enthusiastically coming to Jesus does not save. I mean, an excitement and an enthusiasm about God does not save. Just as there is a faith that does not save and a faith that does save, there is a coming to Jesus that saves and a coming to Jesus that does not save. And here we get to the core problem of Simon. If you have not been paying attention to anything this morning, wake up and pay attention to what I'm about to say for the next ten minutes. Simon says he believes, he undergoes baptism, and yet he is ultimately exposed as a fake and as a phony. And he's exposed when he tries to purchase the ability to manipulate the Holy Spirit. Simon saw people come into faith. Simon was no longer the center of attraction. Simon heard the word. He saw the miracles. The text says that Simon was amazed. But Simon was amazed due to the power that he saw. And Simon's attitude was, if you can't beat them, join them. And after Simon joins them, he looks for a way to get back into his exalted position. He looks for a way to be a superstar again. He looks for a way to get his magic business going again. And in verse 18, he sees something and he finds a way. Verse 18, look. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Remember, Simon was a magician. Simon had the people in his sway. Everybody paid attention to Simon. He had fame and glory and power. And then what happened? The gospel moved into Samaria. People did not pay attention to Simon anymore. Simon was out of business. You have Peter and John laying their hands on people. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. Simon sees this. He wants this ability. Simon sees this as a way to get back into business again. And Simon, like other sorcerers, would have believed that you could manipulate spirits by saying secret incantations and performing certain rituals and casting magic spells. He may have even thought that the name of Jesus was a name, a a deity name that you could manipulate, like, like you could say the name of other gods and get certain power. He may have seen Peter and John say, in the name of Jesus, when they're dealing with people and praying for people. And so Simon sees All of this. Simon's very interested in God. He's very enthusiastic about God. He's excited about God. He is all about God. As long as God can give him what he wants. This is exactly why Simon became a Christian. 
This is why Simon enthusiastically came to Jesus. This is why he was baptized. This is why he followed Philip and the apostles around. Simon's interest in God was totally wrapped up in God doing for Simon what Simon wanted God to do. Simon wanted to control God. Simon wanted to manipulate God, to use God. And Simon's problem is what every single person in this room struggles with. It all comes down to a power struggle. Who is sovereign? Who is in control? Who is really on the throne of your life? And who is submissive to whom? This power struggle has influenced Christian culture more than we think. It it, it even influences how people preach the gospel and why people come to Christ. So many times I've heard the gospel preached this way. Come to Christ and He'll heal your cancer. Come to Christ and and he'll, He'll fix your marriage. Come to Christ and He will help you to be successful in your life or successful in your business. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, and he'll forgive you, and, and you know, you'll get to have a relationship with him and, and all that stuff, too. But come to Christ, and all these other things will happen. Go to any Christian bookstore, and you'll see books abound on all the perks you can get from God in this life. Classic example of this problem is in John 6. You remember John 6, the feeding of the 5,000? Jesus is teaching the people, and, and, and they're out in the wilderness somewhere and they're far away from villages and they're too far to get food and and, and the people are getting hungry the day is drawing to a close and what does Jesus do? Jesus takes five loaves of bread and two fish that's it and he multiplies them And, and by his supernatural power there is more bread and more fish and more bread and more fish and it keeps multiplying and multiplying until all 5,000 people are fed. And actually, it's probably more like ten or 15,000 when you throw in the women and children that would have been there. And what's the people's reaction to this miracle? They're absolutely excited. Free bread. Now remember, this is a society where if you want food, you just don't go down to Publix or Ingalls and pick up a few things for dinner. Getting food was hard work and was always a struggle in that day and age. And here Jesus is miraculously creating bread. And these people are pumped up. They are loving Jesus. They are excited about Jesus. They are so into Jesus that they try to force him to be their king. They will worship this man. They will believe in this man. They will follow this man. They will do anything this man wants them to do as long as he provides them with bread. Now, why did Jesus do this miracle? Jesus didn't do this miracle just to fill people's bellies. He didn't do it because it was Sunday and Chick-fil-A was closed. Jesus did this miracle for the same reason that Jesus does any miracle. For the same reason the Holy Spirit is doing miracles in Acts 8. The purpose of these signs and wonders is to point people to Christ and to teach people something particular about Christ. And what was Jesus trying to teach the people in the feeding of the 5,000? He was not trying to teach them, I will be your sugar daddy. Jesus took their physical hunger and satisfied it with physical bread to point them to something even more important. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me 
shall never thirst. Jesus is telling the people that there is a need that you have that is more significant than your need for physical bread. You have a soul hunger. You have a soul thirst. And just like physical bread can satisfy physical hunger, so I, Jesus says, so I, the bread of life, can satisfy your deepest needs. And just as your body will die if you don't have physical bread, you will spiritually perish forever if you do not partake of me. Jesus goes on to say in John 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for, my li- for the life of the world is my flesh. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my, and my blood is true drink. And how did the people react to Jesus? when they learned that he was not going to be giving them free physical bread all the time? John six sixty six, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That's one of the saddest verses in the Bible, in my opinion. They were initially interested in Jesus. They were excited about Jesus. They enthusiastically came to Jesus. They believed in Jesus, but it was worthless belief. And as soon as Jesus didn't do for them what they thought he should do for them, they turned and they walked away from him. And in Acts 8, Simon sees the miracles. He he hears the word. He believes. He is baptized. He is enthusiastic about God. He is excited about God. He's ready to follow God. He comes to Jesus, and as soon as God does not deliver deliver, Simon disappears. And we never hear from him again in the Bible. We hear from him in other writings, and all of it's bad. And there are many people who come to Christ for the perks and not for the Savior. Many people come to Christ for what they think they should get out of life. Now, here's the thing. Some of the reasons people come to Christ are more noble than Simon's reasons. There's nothing wrong with wanting healing of your body. There's nothing wrong with with wanting your marriage to be fixed. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be successful in business. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. And you know what? Jesus can actually heal. Jesus can fix broken relationships. Jesus can do all kinds of incredible and wonderful things in your life. And there's nothing wrong with praying for those things. But here's the problem. What if you come to Christ... And Jesus doesn't give you miraculous bread? What if you come to Jesus and Jesus does not heal your cancer? In fact, your cancer gets worse. And they say you're going to die in two months. What if you come to Christ and your spouse ends up leaving you? What if you come to Christ and your business fails and you end up penniless? What then? What then? I'll tell you what then, if those were the primary reasons you came to Christ, you're probably going to do what Jesus' superficial followers did at the end of John 6. You're probably going to throw up your hands and say, no bread, then no Jesus. You're probably going to quit. You're probably going to get angry with God, and you're going to try something else that might work. Maybe another religion, maybe no religion. I think this is a a, a deep and abiding problem that is not just limited to disciples in John 6. 
And it's not limited to Simon the magician. It's something that we all struggle with. We are all tempted to love what is at the master's table more than the master. We all deal with this. We all struggle with this. So what's the solution? And what's the vital difference that separates genuine Christianity from the worthless kind? Earlier we looked at how genuine faith demonstrates itself in works and dead faith does not. Well, there's another aspect of genuine saving faith that is not present in dead faith that does not save. The problem with worthless Christianity, with dead faith, is that it views Jesus as a means to an end. I will embrace Jesus because Jesus will help me get... In Acts 8, Simon embraces God and he views God as a means to an end. A means to get power. In John 6, thousands of people enthusiastically come to Jesus. They embrace Jesus and they view Jesus as a means to an end. A means to get free physical bread. That's worthless Christianity. Genuine Christianity is the exact opposite. Genuine Christianity does not see Jesus as a means to an end. In genuine Christianity, Jesus is the end. Jesus is not a genie to get you physical bread or other treasures. Jesus is the treasure. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Genuine faith leads us to come to Jesus to satisfy our deepest hunger and thirst. The faith that is present in genuine Christianity is a faith that sees Jesus as the supreme treasure and as the ultimate soul satisfier to the point where even if I run out of physical bread and starve to death, Jesus is my bread and my soul is satisfied in him because man does not live by bread alone. Even if my marriage does not get fixed, I will grieve. I will have sorrow, but even in the sorrow, Christ is my ultimate prize and joy, and I still have gain. Even if my business fails and I am penniless, I know that Christ is my ultimate treasure because better to be poor and have Christ than to be rich and not know Him. And even if there's no guarantee that Jesus will heal my cancer, well, let let me read to you a quote from John Piper a few years ago, on the eve of his surgery for prostate cancer. He wrote a great article called, Don't Waste Your Cancer. That's so John Piperish. Don't waste your cancer. But listen to what he says. He says, you will waste your cancer if you think that beating cancer means staying alive rather than cherishing Christ. Satan, he goes on to say, Satan's and God's design in your cancer are not the same. Satan designs to destroy your love for Christ. God designs to deepen your love for Christ. Cancer does not win if you die. It wins if you fail to cherish Christ. God's design is to wean you off of the breast of the world and feast you on the sufficiency of Christ. It is meant to help you say and feel, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and to know that therefore to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the direction that genuine Christianity takes us in. And it does not mean that we will never struggle 
and it does not mean that sometimes our faith will not falter, but I truly believe that as God sanctifies us, as he grows us, he, he will teach us to have this perspective more and more and more as time goes on. And this is so different than worthless Christianity. The re- and I'm, I'm closing. The reason why worthless Christianity is worthless is because it values other things instead of Jesus. And if Jesus is supremely and infinitely valuable, if his worth is infinitely greater than anything else, then anything else, no matter how good, if it replaces Jesus, is pretty worthless. Let me pray for you guys. Father God, there are some of us in this room that may be genuine Christians on their way to heaven, but we struggle with who our treasure really is. And there are other things that are competing with Jesus to have that number one slot in our life. God, I pray that you would help us to dethrone all things in our life that we would exalt above you. God, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus as the ultimate soul satisfier, as the ultimate treasure, to not see Jesus as a means to an end, but to see Jesus as the end. And if we have Jesus and nothing else, it still is gain. And God, for us to have a heart like that, that's only going to happen through a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. I can't, I can't be clever enough to, to, to convince people with my words to get into that kind of mindset. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would fall on us and move us closer <clears throat> to that goal of, 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 of having a mindset where it doesn't matter if we don't have anything else in the world. As long as we have you, it is gain and it is treasure. And we can be so happy and so satisfied and so full of joy because of you. Now, God, I also want to pray. There may be some, somebody in this room or some bodies in this room who for years maybe have had the trappings of outward Christianity, who have maybe been baptized, who have, who have professed with their mouth that they believe in Jesus and, and maybe made a decision a long time ago for Jesus, but it's actually worthless Christianity. It's dead faith. It's useless works. It's misplaced enthusiasm for Jesus. God, I pray that this would be the day that you would take the blinders off of their eyes and that you would overcome them with the power of the Spirit, the conviction of the Spirit, so that they may see, they may see that they were never saved to begin with. God, if there's anybody in this room this morning that is in that condition, free them from that bondage now. Please free them from that, God. And help them to see you as the end, not a means to an end. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.